there's a kind of intensification. Uh, and we're not now talking about persecution, Aidan, we're talking about extermination. So although it sounds like a very odd thing to say, you could say that the refugees were the lucky ones. We don't think as we don't think of refugees as, as the fortunate, uh, the fortunate ones, um, but they are fortunate in the sense that they escape with their lives. You're listening to Seeking Refuge, a podcast sharing the human stories of refugees. Welcome to our season four premiere. The person you just heard was our guest for today, Dr. Peter Guttrell, a longtime professor at the University of Manchester in England. Your host for this week is me, Aidan Thomason. I am a history nerd, so since we started this show, I have been interested in the history of refugees and migration. Today, with the help of Professor Guttrell, I'm going to tell you the story of what I found. Throughout time, there have always been groups of what we would now call refugees, but the implications of what that means have changed. Before we go any further, I want to let Professor Guttrell introduce himself. Over the last half of my career, I've become more and more interested in refugee history. I teach history, but I've taught lots of different courses. But around 20, 25 years ago, I got particularly interested in refugees and wanted to try and think of refugees as an important part of modern history rather than as kind of people on the sidelines. Uh, And I'm interested in using historical source material to try and understand why refugees emerged uh, in such a large number in the 20th century, uh, what kinds of programs have been devised to assist them, uh, but also not to lose sight of the fact that refugees are human beings and have their own perspectives, their own wishes, uh, which need to be acknowledged and and respected. Peter writes and teaches about refugees. I'm fundamentally uh, an academic historian. Um, I have worked with refugees, but I don't claim to be uh, an activist. I feel my contribution is is one that I can make through through writing and trying to make um, refugee history an important part of, of what we do. Before Peter became a migration historian, he studied the economic and social issues in Russia before the Russian Revolution in 1917. He was writing about Russia during World War I on the eve of the revolution, but before it. I kept encountering in Russian uh, the word refugee. And it was clear that there were large numbers of, of refugees, but no one was telling me who they were, where they came from. Uh, they were just saying, well, they contributed a bit to the labor force uh, during the First World War, along with prisoners of war, women who were in, incorporated in larger numbers into the workforce. But as I dug a little deeper, uh, I found that there were something like seven or eight million refugees in Russia by 1917. Well, that's far greater number than the, the organized working class. Um, and there were and still are thousands and thousands of books written about the working class in Russia. Rightly so, it's an important subject, but nothing, not one book about refugees, even though, as I say, there were huge numbers of them. So I, to cut a long story short, wrote the book. Um, and, 
as I wrote it, I was drawing upon the work of not so much historians, but of social scientists, so anthropologists, sociologists, political scientists, who, who had all been exploring issues around refugees from their perspective in the later 20th century. And so I drew upon some of this work to ask questions about, well, how did refugees in the Russian Empire think of themselves? What did they have to say? Were they purely passive objects of, of external intervention? Or did they have a kind of agency uh, in their own right? And of course, it didn't take long to work out that, yes, they wanted to make themselves heard. They'd been forced from their homes, partly by invasion. Um, this is the First World War, so Germany and Austria were at war with Russia. They invaded, people fled. But also the, the authorities of the Russian Empire, so this is the Tsarist uh, Empire, um, had also engaged in forced deportations of people they didn't trust. So there's a significant number of Germans living in the Russian Empire, had done for centuries. They were kicked out of their homes. Um, there were Poles, Lithuanians, and above all, Jews. So these are all subjects of the Tsar who were pretty much unceremoniously deported and forced to live elsewhere. So they were internally, internally displaced. So, of course, what that made me realize is that to become a refugee uh, might be a matter of your own response to the threat posed by an enemy. But it was also because your own state was turning against you and turning you into a refugee. So that happened essentially not just in the Russian Empire, but in the Ottoman Empire, what became Turkey. Um, because as many people will know, in the United States, uh, there was a significant persecution of the Armenian minority, which resulted in genocide in 1915 but also a substantial number of people who survived and made their way either to Russia or to France or the United States. If our American listeners are wondering, in addition to Armenian refugees, the U.S. also had a huge influx of refugees fleeing the Mexican Revolution during the 1910s. Coming to the U.S. after 1917 became much more difficult with the passage of the Immigration Act of 1917, which required a literacy test to enter the country but this was waived for people fleeing religious persecution specifically. The Quota Acts of 1921 and 1924 made fleeing to the U.S. much more difficult for refugees and immigrants who were not from Western Europe, and this posed obstacles for people's fleeing persecution, including Jews during the Holocaust, up until World War II. Now back to Peter's story. So, Aidan, what, what you can see is, is a history beginning to, that began to crystallize in, in my mind uh, that was a century, century old, a century ago. But the ramifications uh, continued, partly because you get the aftershock, you know, what happened to these people in the 1920s and the 1930s, but also because the kind of framework or, if you like, the tools uh, to analyse this could be used in other circumstances. So what I did was to end up writing another book called The Making of the Modern Refugee, which is about uh, the, the history of the world in the 20th century, although I didn't say much about the Americas, but I did about other parts of the, of the world. And then much more recently, 
um, books on a campaign to assist refugees called World Refugee Year. And then uh, a year or so ago, a book about migration generally in Europe, in and to Europe, called The Unsettling of Europe. So it's become a kind of rolling bandwagon, I suppose you could say, of, uh, of one thing leading uh, to another. And maybe if we have time, I can tell you more about what I'm doing right now. Next, I asked when refugees, as we know them, began to exist. It can really be traced to, to the later 19th century. I mean, we can find examples historically of, of refugees uh, in, in the past. The, 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 the classic example in, in Europe would be Huguenot refugees um, being um, forced from their homes as Protestants in, in early modern France, and many of them end up in, in the United Kingdom. The example that Peter brings up here is actually the first recorded use of the word refugee in English. It comes from the French word refugié, which referred to the Protestants who fled France following the revocation of the Edict of Nantes, which granted religious liberty and civil rights to the Huguenots. Within a decade, refugee was used in English to more generally describe anyone who was forced to flee to a place of safety, typically due to danger or persecution. Prior to this, there were groups of people who would now be considered refugees. Some of these are the Israelites in 740 BCE, the Jews who were expelled from Spain in the 15th century, and the Muasirs who arrived from Eastern Europe into Turkey in the 1780s. These are just a few examples, but the rise of controlled borders changed what it looked like to flee persecution. It's a, it's a question really of, of scale and, and also of kind of definition. That by, by the later 19th century, you have people who are being targeted and, and driven from their homes in, in the Russian Empire and the uh, other, other parts of, of Europe and are becoming um, kind of involved in, in issues around the formation of the nation state and the dissolution of, of empire. So as, as nation states began to kind of grow and, and develop a kind of uh, justification of, of their own, they were working out basically who, who is within the, the nation state, who belongs to the nation and who doesn't. So you get, along with the, the development of the nation state, questions being asked by, by governments or, or, or state leaders uh, about who, who is part of the, of the polity, who is part of the, uh, of the, of the body of the nation state and who isn't. If you're not familiar with the concept of the nation state, it is essentially the framework for governance which we live in. A state is a political science term for a government, essentially. It is described as a political entity, so a group of people within a territory, under one system of governance which has sovereignty. Sovereignty basically means an ultimate authority that has the sole right to use violence legitimately in the territory. So a nation state is a group of people within a defined territory under one government and a nation-state is considered to have one dominant cultural identity, which is why refugees become a complication in the view of nation-states. People fleeing another area because of some aspect of their identity challenges the perceived identity of the place they are seeking refuge in. According to Peter, the idea of the nation-state intensified after the First World War. In some empires, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Russian Empire, and the Ottoman Empire crumbled and gave way to new states with new identities. And, and these new independent states were, were asking themselves, well, do we want minorities? 
do we want Jews? If we're if we're Poland as a as a, an independent nation, do we want Lithuanians in, in our midst? So all of this is a kind of impulse towards creating refugees as a kind of new category, um, and not just a category of people who are being made homeless, so to speak, or unwelcome, but also by the same token, people who are who become a category of concern internationally. So one of the things that happened after the First World War is that uh, the League of Nations came into being as a kind of intergovernmental organization. And the League of Nations as a kind of supranational or inter international organization uh, was interested in all sorts of questions about how to rebuild after the First World War. And it was interested in questions around health, uh, around trafficking of women, um, around alcohol consumption, but also around refugees. So I think there are two things happening around the early 20th century, the late 19th, early 20th century. The nation state uh, as a kind of container, but once you contain, you're also deciding who is not to belong, who is outside the, the tent, so to speak. That's the first thing. And the other thing is that once you get uh, this manifestation of, of, of refugees, um, you get organizations, including voluntary organizations, that are coming on the scene to assist, or if you prefer to act, upon the, the figure of the refugee. I have read a lot of things that cite 1945 and the end of World War II as a vital turning point in what has been called a century of refugees. So I asked Peter about what the end of World War II meant for refugees and the differences in the interwar period between the two world wars and the end of the second one. Peter said it is better to think of it as the late 1940s, including 1945, rather than specifically the year 1945. It's important to understand that the world was coming to terms with the great disaster of World War II, and tens and tens of millions of people were displaced all around the world. And that is a global phenomenon. So you cannot say there's a refugee crisis, if we can put that in quotes, um, in one part of the world only. Certainly uh, there's a crisis in Europe, um, which we can talk about, but also uh, a massive crisis in China as a result of the uh, Japanese invasion in the 30s and the civil war in the 40s. So the tens of millions of Chinese who are who are out of place. You can think of them as internally displaced, by and large. Apart from the Far East and Europe, there are political upheavals all over the world in successive years in the late 1940s. In 1947, there's the partition of India, where the British leave very abruptly and the former British colonies split into new independent states, India and Pakistan, which leads to 12 or 15 million people being moved from their homes with incredible violence. In 1948, wars erupt in the Middle East, one of which culminates in the formation of the State of Israel, leading to the expulsion of Palestinian Arab populations to other countries. In 1949, the People's Republic of China and an exodus of Chinese to Hong Kong. So what is distinctive in many ways about the late 1940s is the global scope uh, and, and the enormous magnitude of population displacement of, of, of refugees. And that's significant partly 
because in absolute and certainly in proportionate terms, proportionate to the population of the world, it's bigger then in the 40s than it has been since, even now. Of course, in the 30s, there are refugees, not just the survivors of the of the First World War, the Russians and the Armenians and others, but also uh, new refugees, um, obviously refugees from Nazi Germany, those who are able to escape, um, but also refugees from the Spanish Civil War. And I think that is significant for two reasons. W one is, if, if we set aside the Holocaust and think about the situation before 1939 or 1941, um, there is a relatively modest exodus of Jews from, from Nazi Germany. Um, and that, that creates something of a, uh, of a, of a crisis in, in the politics of, of states from France and Britain to the United States. Well, but there are, there are some very limited efforts to, to assist. But it suggests the importance of, of the idea of persecution. Okay, persecution becomes a, an important doctrine after the Second World War. The other thing that, that's significant about, about the 1930s is the Spanish Civil War, because it draws attention to the importance of, of state, states that collapse or that states that are at war within, its, within themselves. So there's been a Russian civil war that creates refugees, but the Spanish civil war is, is particularly significant because you have a, a decisions on the part of those who oppose the, the new nationalist government of, of Franco to um, resist, but some of them resist by escaping, you know, to, to as it were, fight the good fight from, from outside. So you get refugees moving to Mexico, refugees are moving to the UK, lots into France, uh, and some into Russia, where they're put into kind of um, homes for children. So you, you can begin to see that already there are, there are kind of different forces acting to create uh, refugees. It's state collapse, uh, it's civil war, and new states emerging, uh, and it's also very intense persecution that's associated particularly with the Hitler state. Um, and it's also significant because you get organizations trying to assist, voluntary organizations, Save the Children Fund, Red Cross, uh, and also government intergovernmental bodies like the League of Nations. And that continues after the war. With the changing nature of borders during the early 20th century, I was curious about whether solidifying the nation-state system created more internal problems for states, like civil conflict, totalitarianism, and state collapse, or if people were just able to move more freely to escape those problems prior to this time period. Peter began his answer with the example of one of the totalitarian states in the 1930s, Nazi Germany. As he understands it, the Nazis allowed German Jews to emigrate in the 1930s if they paid lots of money to do so. What worsened the situation was the annexation of the Sudetenland, aka Czechoslovakia, 
meaning that a larger number of Jews were at risk of Nazi Germany. The situation then got catastrophically worse again in 1941 when the Germans invaded the Soviet Union, exposing Soviet Jews to the mass extermination that is already taking place in Germany and the countries it invaded, including Poland, by this time. So there's a kind of intensification, uh, and we're not now talking about persecution, Aidan, we're talking about extermination. So although it sounds like a very odd thing to say, you could say that the refugees were the lucky ones. You know, we don't think as we don't think of refugees as, as the fortunate, uh, the fortunate ones, um, but they are fortunate in the sense that they escape with their lives. For another totalitarian state, Soviet Russia, which had already lost many Russians from 1917 to 1921 when they became refugees because of the civil war, had extremely tight controls on exit from its borders. And I and I talk quite a, a bit about what that implied. Um, in the in the 1950s and beyond in in the unsettling of Europe because that that's that's a very striking phenomenon you've got a, a state that's victorious in 1945 the Soviet Union won you know defeated defeated the Nazis um, it regarded itself as a victorious state and uh, was prepared to do even more to kind of crush internal dissent and to impose restrictions on people trying to leave the Soviet Union. But there's, a, there's a, an important element to this story, which is that the Nazi state, in order to support its economic efforts during the war, had forcibly recruited civilians from France and Belgium, but in much greater numbers from Poland and the Baltic states. So as they invaded in, in 1939, and took control of territory, they grabbed civilians and said, right, you're coming to work in Germany under terrible conditions, and, and yet they're forced laborers. But they too survived. They, they, weren't, they weren't Jewish. They were ethnically Polish or Ukrainian or Lithuanian or, or whatever, uh, and worked um, in, a, in a kind of slavery, but were there at the end of the Second World War. So the question there is what to do with them. Well, you could say, what do you do with any refugee population? You encourage them to repatriate. Now you find large numbers of them do for all sorts of reasons. My home is in Poland. My home is in Kiev or you know, wherever it might be. But what happens if, you, if, if, you're, if you're Lithuanian or Latvian? Uh, what happens if you're Polish? These, these were independent states before 1939-40. And now the Baltic states have been absorbed into the Soviet Union, so your home, if you're Lithuanian, is controlled from Moscow. So do you go home or do you not? Uh, some did, but some said, I'm going to stay where I am. I feel safer in the ruins of Germany than I do under the control of the Kremlin, if I can put it like that. And it's even more complicated in the case of Ukrainians because you may have been a Ukrainian living in the Soviet Union in the 1930s. Do you want to return? If you're a Ukrainian nationalist, for example, do you want to return to Soviet Ukraine? Or do you say, well, this is my best chance of getting to the West? So this is the, this is the problem of the DPs, the displaced persons. And there are millions of them in 1945. So this is, you know, when you asked about Europe in 1945, that's really what we're thinking about. What do you do with displaced persons? 
where do they go? Um, and the answer is, for thousands and thousands, they're in camps uh, in Europe as late as 1960. There are still refugee camps in Germany and Austria, and they're filled with um, DPs. Something that interested me was how often Peter brought up the idea of agency, of choice, in his writing and during the interview. So I asked him to elaborate. The whole question of, of choice, it's, it's partly a philosophical question, Aidan. Um, it's not just a question about refugees. Um, it's about the exercise of, of, of agency or, or one's free freedom of will. Clearly, for many people who are caught up in wars and civil wars, uh, wars of, of national liberation, we, we haven't spoken about that, but wars of, uh, of people trying to uh, confront and resist colonial rule, um, certainly in the 50s and 60s, that produces refugees as well. Well, sometimes there is a choice. You, you can choose to stay and fight, but you might choose to flee and fight. Um, I'm thinking, for example, of, of refugees in parts of sub-Saharan Africa by the time we get to the 50s and 60s, who think it's an important decision to look to another state for refuge and to use that state as a kind of base from which to attack the colonial regime in whichever country it is. The other question, the other point I think about choice is that, well, there are several points. One is that some people cannot exercise choice. Uh, and that I think applies generally to migration, not just to refugees. Um, I've been thinking a bit about this in relation to the unsettling of Europe, that it's a book about people who move, who migrate, they cross borders or they move internally. Um, but it's much easier to do that if you're young and able-bodied um, and male. You may, for example, um, be unable to, to move, whether you're a refugee or a, a, a non-refugee migrant. You, you may want to move, but you can't because you have caring responsibilities for older people. That's something that will affect women more than men. Or you might like to move, um, but for reasons of physical um, injury, disability, um, you, you may simply be able to do that. So the questions of, of mobility um, aren't easily addressed by saying, well, everyone, everyone can move. Of course they can't. Of course they can't. So there are not just barriers such as we talked about a moment ago. The Soviet Union say you cannot leave, you know, except in you know, very exceptional, exceptional circumstances. But there are, there are the barriers that um, are kind of a bit less institutionalized or administrative. So there's that question of, of, of choice as well. And the other thing I want to say about choice, since it's a very, a very good question you ask, is about how you exercise that choice. What, what, if you're free to, to move, or if you decided to move, um, where, where do you go? There's, a, there's also a question of choice about one's destination, one's route. Um, it's never, well, I say never, it's rarely straightforward for migrants, including refugees, to say, here's point A, which is where I am at the moment, I'm going to go to point B. There are often detours. There's often 
contingency, which, which means that you're trying to get from A to B, but something happens to you, uh, an official gets in your way or says you've got the wrong documents or says you can't come through this way, uh, which means that choices are always constrained. So I don't know whether that answers your question, but I think the, the, whole, the whole business of, of, of choice is, is a fundamental one. Um, and, it, and it might seem at first glance to be straightforward, I'm either able to go or I'm not. But you know, if you start to kind of interrogate it, if you start to, to pick at it a little bit more, uh, it becomes much less clear cut. I think you articulated it well, the nuances, because it can be kind of hard to think about, especially if you've never been in that situation, how the choices would work versus when they're available and when they're not. Yeah, in, in, in the, the recent book, Unsettling of Europe, what I, what I did was to talk about ordeal and opportunity. That's to say, um, we can all, I think, at least imagine what it means to, to, to be confronted by an ordeal, uh, but that, and that may come from the threat or the actuality of violence launched by a state. Um, but it might equally come from, um, if, if I can put it this way, uh, much more kind of personal or intimate circumstances of, of wanting to escape uh, domestic violence. So that, 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 that is also a kind of ordeal. We don't tend to think of that as creating refugees, but it certainly is a, a factor in migration. Opportunity, well, you might think, well, that's all about economics. Um, and of course, that's a fundamental element. You know, my, migration is about seizing opportunities to, um, to work, maybe set up a business. Um, but it, it can also be about romance. Um, and I don't just mean that in kind of the sense of, of, of uh, affection, uh, but of adventure. You know, the romance of, of wanting to explore a different society and a different culture. That is also opportunity. That's important uh, to migrants. And it may also be opportunity that presents itself to refugees. We, we shouldn't think that to be a refugee is always to be caught in a trap of, of violence. You know, to be a refugee might also be a, a, a way of exploring yourself or exploring new avenues um, in, in the way that I've just, I've just described or, or connecting with other, with other people. If you think about the, the notion of a diaspora, um, a, a diaspora is is a scattering of of people. Well, if you think of Jews and Armenians in the um, earlier, the late nineteenth or the early twentieth century, if you think about Poles in the middle of the twentieth century, if you think about uh, Tamil uh, refugees from from Sri Lanka in the nineteen eighties, th these are all people who are on the move, but they see their displacement not just as an ordeal, uh, but also as a way of connecting with these other diasporic groups for kind of solidarity or to support their faith or to, you know, to, to, to help set up a, a business or whatever. So, you know, ordeal and opportunity, I think, are, are, 
are nice ways of thinking about this that that impact upon both those we think of as refugees and those we think of as migrants who are not refugees. And that's where we'll leave you this week. This episode was part one of our two-part dive into the history of modern refugees and what has been called the century of refugees. That was our guest, Professor Peter Gattrell of the University of Manchester. Tune back in next week to hear the second half of my conversation with him, which will cover the establishment of the United Nations and the UNHCR, and the formalizing systems for dealing with refugees. If you liked this episode, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us in the comments below. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email us at seekingrefugepodcast at gmail.com. Follow us at Refuge Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook for all the updates on our show. We'd love to do more historical episodes in the future, so let us know what time periods, locations, and stories you'd like to learn more about by contacting us via email, on social media, or in the comments wherever you get your podcasts. As always, a huge thank you to Maxine International House for making our show possible. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next one.